Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, Episode 82, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. Today, we take a deeper dive into student lunch debt, and New Orleans is about to become the first U.S. city without traditionally run public schools. So what does that mean? Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, is it possible to measure a student's curiosity? Some MIT researchers say yes, and they're joining us on today's show. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by teacher extraordinaire Lissa Pruitt and education data expert Russ Davis of School Status. Lissa, how are you doing? I'm great. Russ, how have you been? <laughs> I have been busy. Yeah, I know. So. I, I said it like that because we hadn't we hadn't had a chance to, to visit in a little while. Um, I guess you had a pretty busy end of the year. And how was your new year? Uh, it, my new year has been great. Um, these things have been really busy, man. It's, um, you know, trying to get the year closed up, running a company is always a challenge. And then we take, um, two full weeks off at the end of the school year. And we also take off a week for Thanksgiving. And so, um, you know, trying to, you know, trying to respect that and, um, you know, be shut down during that time is, is just, again, always a challenge. So, but things are going well. Good, good, good. Uh, Lissa, uh, you are about to go back to school you're not quite there yet right in three days three days from mm-hmm. this recording and i guess this, right. this recording is actually going to hit the day you're back at school all that's, right that's when it's going to publish but <laughs> are you ready to get back like do you have the itch yet or are you good oh i'm good it's funny though because we had some changes with our calendar because of a bad weather makeup day so last night i text my teacher friend across the hall i text her late last night i was like hey wait we do go back Monday, right? Because like I was sitting there last night thinking, what if we go back today? And like I missed it, you know, like I didn't realize. And she just, you know, was laughing. She was like, yes, we go back Monday. <laughs> you know, it's funny. We've been doing this show for a long time. And, um, you know, we have listeners everywhere. We've talked about this in past episodes. We're like 61 countries and 50 states. But last night uh, you had posted something about one of our shows on your Facebook page. And there's people who like I know. know you. Know like, me so well. Know you really well. Like I see know. you every day. And they're like, I never knew you did this. I know. And they're all and teacher they're... friends of mine too. And I'm like, but yeah. I have posted about it before. And I have shared, I think... I really, I know this is so silly, but I think for some uh, some people around these parts, mm-hmm. the podcast thing is just catching on. Right. You know what I mean? We're yeah. a little late to that party. And so when they've heard me speak of it before, maybe they just didn't truly understand I what I was talking about. I think millennials are all about the podcast, but it's like right. the 30-somethings that are still kind of starting to pick it up. <laughs> okay. Okay. We're all 30-somethings. <laughs> what you're saying. Yeah. We're all, that's all of us, right? <laughs> Right, Russ. You yeah, want to? No, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely somewhere in my 30s. And, and really, I, I've got to give Russ credit because he, this whole idea is his idea of doing the podcast. And Russ was, gosh, a year and a half ago, like we need to do this. And that's that's typical Russ, like a little bit ahead of the curve on anything that people are doing in technology related areas. Yeah. So. 
So anyhow, uh, it's been good. Your post actually on Facebook, um, I think it was it got more traction than mine. And um, mm, sorry, I don't understand. I think Facebook doesn't like me, or people don't like me. It's one mm. or the other. Um, but anyhow, your post did really well, uh, and it's driving all this traffic to our website. Like that I got a, I got a thing from WordPress. It's like your stats are booming, and I was like, listen. I know. <laughs> sorry, but you know, yeah, a lot right. of um, people messaged me privately and said. I mean, even this morning, I woke up to like 15 messages of no, people saying, I just listened to episode, blah, blah, blah. Or I, yeah. you know, I just tuned in and I subscribed and I love it. And I, I can't believe I didn't know. Well, <laughs> good. Good. Well, let's keep it going. Why don't we jump into the uh, teacher's lounge? What do you know? I'm following up still on the, the lunch shaming and the lunch. Um, yeah, we, we talked about this. We have talked about it a couple of times, but I did kind of dive a little deeper because I don't see it as much in my school but I did not, I was not aware that like there are some schools, like our school will still serve the children. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some schools that will not. And we're, then there's just so people they may miss, we're talking about kids that just don't have lunch money. That's right. Yeah. Yes. So they don't qualify for the free or reduced lunch um, program. They don't qualify for that because of, for a family of four, that you, you have to, make less than I think it's like 32,000 or something and so there's a lot of people that don't qualify for that but then they still have a hard time making their you know that's like three dollars a day for lunch for their child um and so the children you know we've we've talked about different states and how they handle it differently um you know we did a little push here locally just to pay off some debt um but I did not realize that there are actually schools that will not serve the children. Really? Like they do not receive a lunch. And is that so like, they like go to not lunch. even not That's even right. like a like a prison lunch, like the bologna and Right. You not know. right. No, they will not serve them until wow. that and they put a stamp on their hand. And tell them to. That's what. uh, Yeah. So it's a stamp like that says, you know, I need lunch money or whatever. There are some schools um, and districts around the nation that will serve the children like an apple and a milk. Um, But again, that falls under the umbrella of of shaming because all the other children are like, wait, I just went through the line with you. Why'd you just get milk and an apple? Right. And I got this full hot meal. Right. Um, So they certainly, there are some places that do not get give a hot meal at all. Um, and then, you know, we just talked about recently how Rhode Island, you know, does, has turned over to a collection agency mm-hmm. to kind of try to get some of that debt paid off um, and collect those debts. But I do like what New Mexico is doing. They are, they have passed the Hunger-Free Students' Bill of Rights, um, which kind of mandates certain structure like th- that, this is okay to do. This is not okay to do. This is what we're going to do. Um, and so one of the things that I thought was interesting is they don't, you're not allowed to really contact parents and let them know that they're behind on their students' lunches unless you've also tried to enroll them in the free and reduced program um, and help them take like just truly rigorous steps to help them get in that program. They've also given administrators the power to say these children qualify okay. regardless. Gotcha. And I think California has done that a little bit too. They've also um, mandated that students are served the exact same meals, whether they have a debt or not. And right. there is nothing goes home with the child or is placed upon the child 
to say, hey, mom, dad, I need money. Right, um, that the school and the administrators are the ones that are making that contact, but also trying to help them qualify for the reduced program. I know, Nick, that we talked about how, you know, do schools need to budget this in? And so and I want Russ's opinion on this because he understands, you know, the the burdens that our, our superintendent's offices have. Is it unreasonable to say that a district office should just have to budget in, you know, this, we last year we had to pay for $50,000 worth of lunches and we just need to budget for that? Well, I don't think it's completely unreasonable, but I just don't know where the money's going to come from. You know, schools are already kind of stretched to the maximum. I read an article or I saw something come through my Twitter feed recently that was talking about um, schools that have, since they passed these laws, they started accruing debt at a lot faster rate. So parents have just, uh, many districts stop paying. Like, hey, if they're not going to come after me and there's there's no repercussions for it, then, you know, uh, I'm just not going to pay my lunch. I think that makes you a terrible parent if you can pay and you don't. Right. Um, but uh, but I don't know that there's a whole lot the district can do about it under these new laws. Um, you know, I personally, I believe that you should have to be something for your lunch if you can. Um, I don't know that the, I agree that the lunch shaming is about if somebody legitimately cannot pay for their lunch, then they should be on free and reduced lunch. Um, I think like there's a difference between a parent's ability and a parent's willingness to pay. Um, those are two very different things, but I think that shaming the kid over some crappy parent's choice is, you know, not the solution to this problem. But I do think that the school district should get physical. Like, I think that they should hire a collection agency that if you can pay, meaning that like they're like the, the threshold for pre-reduced lunch is not unreasonably high. Like it is, you know, typically if you, you know, it's a buck 25. I know that there are a lot of people that are in that are that kind of a working class poor that kind of fall into this gap. But, you know, I grew up pretty broke, too. And um, I remember my mom writing out that check for, you know, five dollars and twenty five cents or whatever it was. And, you know, I, re- I remember that. And I remember that my parents paid that bill every single time and we were not eligible for free and reduced lunch because my parents made just a shade over the over the amount. And so um, I don't know. I, I'm just kind of mixed on this. I think that, you know, for the people that are legitimately impoverished, I think that there are existing programs for that. Um, I, I just don't know that the solution is for schools. Maybe it's just schools just budget for 100 percent. Right. Like we, we just pay for like we pay for all lunches regardless. Right. Um, and you know, that'd be the end of it, but I just don't know where, I don't know the good solution for this, I guess is what I, I'm saying. Cause I can see it from both sides. I just feel, I, I get it. Schools are strapped and money's tight, but having managed a large budget in the past, what's expensive are pay raises and people and things like that. But we're just talking about a once a year cost and it's, it's pretty fixed. You, you basically can budget for it. You know what it's going to be, uh, I don't know. I feel like the money is there, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking on a turn. I'm not in the district office. I'm not looking at these budgets, but I feel like they can find it. Well, I yeah, I, I, go ahead. I, I think if the cost was fixed, they could, but I think that you're going to run into this problem. Once people figure out that there is no repercussion, I think that they're just going to stop paying. Well, I, I'll tell you what though, Nick, there are people that are saying, okay, if there isn't the money, well, we're going to find the money. So what you do see, yeah, Yeah. you see a lot of businesses and community groups kind of getting together and paying off lunch fines, just like we did here locally. Um, In fact, 
in the Wisconsin Madison Metropolitan School District, they just raised twenty five thousand dollars, and it was human resource workers from the school district that got together and raised that twenty five thousand dollars to pay off wow. everybody's debt. That was That's you know up until that point. I mean, and you hear stories of it of different communities and things that are doing it to help help their school district. By the way, mm-hmm. to help their school district, but also to help a child. And I think sometimes people, when they think of school districts and the budget, and then they feel like sometimes the money is mismanaged and the money's going towards this, and I wish it would go to that. So sometimes, just I think regular people and businesses, they like this ability to say this money is directly going into the mouth of a child, right. and I'm happy to give it because it's not going to be. Right. You know, managed in it's some not other be a, way. A charter bus for the football team. Right. Oops, did I say that? <laughs> um, <laughs> I did. Um, anyhow, uh, let's go ahead and switch gears before I get myself in trouble. Russ, uh, this this story, I'm, I'm looking forward to your analysis on it. It's out of New Orleans, right? It is out of New Orleans. Yeah. So, New Orleans is kind of, for those of you who aren't aware, after Katrina, New Orleans switched to this. Um, kind of a hotbed of charter schools. So the New Orleans, the Orleans Parish Public School District really wasn't doing very well uh, to start with. I think that they had had maybe a technology director go to prison at some point. Um, A superintendent certainly had gotten in trouble. And after Katrina, um, they basically set up, uh, they took the traditional schools and set them up as charter schools. And this has been a source of great consternation. And I'm going to be honest with you, I, I, I am in the business of educational research and educational measurement, and I have a hard time determining who's right and who's wrong here. And let me explain that. So I've seen research on both sides that said that the charter schools are doing very well. And I've seen research on the other side saying the charter schools are not. And it's kind of a shell game. There was a high school that was called McDonough 35 Senior High School, and it traditionally has been a school that's done pretty well. Well, apparently it's fallen on hard times and recently was uh, gotten a D rating of the school district. Well, the um, the school district just recently um, awarded a $5 million two-year uh, contract to a charter management organization called Inspire NOLA. And so that is the last public high school in New Orleans that is that was a traditional high school. And now it's going to be managed by a charter organization. And people are pissed off about this. Uh, There are a lot of people that showed up at the school board meeting that were public school advocates, uh, traditional public school advocates. And um, apparently this organization has taken other uh, schools that were failing that were high schools and have turned them around. So so I I, I want to understand this right. You're saying there basically are – it's unfair for me to say there are no public schools in New Orleans because essentially public dollars are being spent, but there really are no public schools in New Orleans, right? There, there, are, there are no traditional public schools in New Orleans. Yeah. So um, as far as like high schools, I think there are still a few elementary schools running around, but uh, but there are tons and tons and tons of charter schools. There are more charter schools in New Orleans and Orleans Parish, such a percentage of their schools than there are anywhere else in the country. Uh, the state superintendent of education is appointed. It's a, it's a political position. And so there was a lot of rumors that they had modified their state accountability model to accommodate these charters and to make them look good under the previous governor, um, who was uh, Bobby Jindal, who was Republican. And so, um, and obviously that largely the charter movement is tied to uh, kind of the conservative movement as well. And so I, I guess I can understand that if the, like there was an organization that took, they're saying that that organization took over 
uh, a school in 2015 that was F-rated and brought it to a C last year. And there were other schools that took a, uh, a school district, schools that were failing and brought them to C's and B's. And so I guess my question is, if the rest of the district is already kind of subscribed to this charter philosophy and this school isn't doing well and the other schools are, to me, like the cat's kind of out of the bag at that point, right? Like I, have, I just have a hard time saying, well, let's give this a try. Um, you know, I, I just, I guess I'm mixed on this, but it's, you know, there's a, there's a big push for charter schools all over the country. And there's a lot of studies that, or there are several studies. There's one that I can think of that's notable. That's out of, um, uh, I believe it's UC Berkeley that talks about, uh, how you have, it's about a 50, 50, it's a coin flip, whether the school is going to do better than its peer. And so I, I guess I can understand the point here, but I guess the, the reason this is notable, it is the last high school that is going to be under the administration of the Orleans Parish School Board. Am I wrong to look at charter schools like restaurants? And what I mean by that is like, if you have a bunch of steak restaurants, you've got a, a Western Sizzlin, an Outback, and a Ruth's Chris. It, charter school is going to be the same way. You're, some kids are going to get to go to the Ruth's Chris, and some kids are going to get stuck at the Western Sizzlin. Like, is it, they're just, it's all, that's what happens when you have capitalism. And not everyone's going to end up at the good charter schools. And I don't know that that's li- I, lifting the, everybody up. I would say that that is a fair assertion. Um, I don't know that it's fair in every case, but I think overall, I think that that's true. I think that I have a real hard time with like this um, Silicon Valley approach to education, which is fail early, fail like fail early and fix it or whatever, because these are kids that we're talking about. And so I think that like I live in Mississippi and I'm from Mississippi, and I think that our um, our organization, our charter or- authorizing board, has done a pretty fair job at rejecting charters that they just not, did not think would work. They didn't have the financial wherewithal. Because um, we've covered several of these organizations uh, on our podcast that have just not done very well. And, you know, I think that there is a place where um, some some charter organizations can do very well. I do not think that it's a solution for every single school that's not doing well. Um, and I also have a problem whenever they open a charter and they take regulations off of that school. Um, the only problem I have is that if you are operating a traditional public school and somebody comes in and they take a bunch of regulation off that school and allow them to operate more freely, then why not do the exact same thing for that public school right. in the same district? Right. Like, why not yes. let put them on a level playing field? And that's the only real problem I've had with charters in the past. It's like, look, if it helps improve the outcomes for kids, hell, go for it, right? But I just think that they should be on a level playing field. If you still leave traditional schools under the existing burdens and regulations, like people, you know, it, it's well known that schools are kind of bureaucratic in their nature. And have you seen the compliance requirements for schools? Like, it's not just like local requirements. Very few regulations are placed on schools by the local school board. Overwhelmingly, it is state and federal regulations that make school districts this kind of like legal, like this perilous place to, to do business. And, you know, my thing is, if you're going to take the regulations off of charters and you're going to allow them to operate in any which way that they see fit, then I think you should do the same thing for, for public schools. And I think they should be held to the same standards. In a lot of cases, they are. They're held to the same accountability standards. But I think they should take the same tests and do the same same work. And I think if you look at, like here in Mississippi, and you look at the the school district, the, the charter schools that are operating in the city of Jackson, I don't think they're doing that great, right? I think they've come in and they've realized this is tougher than it looks. I used to be vehemently opposed to charter schools. And then I saw some examples where they worked. 
And I don't have a problem if a school district has failed continuously for years and is showing no sign of improvement, let somebody else take a swing at it. But I think the person that takes a swing at it should be the Ruth Chris and not the Western Sizzlin. Yeah. Lisa? Mm, and I think you, you have to have the community involvement. You have to have, you have to really go outside of the school, whether it's public or charter, and you have to start working in the communities to try to instill at home with the parents and the businesses and everyone involved in the community of, look, this is it, guys. This is, you're upset that this is failing. You're upset that this is your last, you know, operating traditional public school. Like, it takes everybody to make this work. Because I do think when you see some charter, charter schools fail, it's because, well, there's the same people inside the school. Mm-hmm. And it's the same community around that school. So there is a, there's a ton of research that shows that if it's failing, it's because the community is failing also. Right. Well, are you guys ready for the uh, bright idea? Sure. Yes. We, um, talking about assessments and, and measuring things, we have reached out to two MIT researchers that have been developing with a team um, what they call playful assessments. And what they're doing is they're assessing um, things that are hard to assess, like curiosity and critical thinking, but they're trying to find ways to actually like have data backing that up and assessing that. Um, it's complex. Um, what they're doing is amazing. They're extremely smart people. And um, I think you guys are really going to enjoy the interview. Our guests in today's Bright Ideas segment are two MIT researchers that are developing a new way to measure students' growth. Louisa Rosenheck is a designer and researcher, and YJ Kim is a project director at the MIT Office of Open Learning, and they are creating a way to measure outcomes of things that are difficult but important to measure, like curiosity and critical thinking. Louisa and YJ, welcome to the show. Thank you. I am hello. <laughs> hello, hello. I am very excited to have you guys on because this is a complex, but it's also a very important topic, and you guys seem to be making some headway here. Uh, so, the first question I really have for you is: When did you realize or, or identify that there really wasn't a great way established to measure things like curiosity and critical thinking and, and whatever else you're measuring here? So, there has been many, many years of uh, attempt and effort by assessment scientists to come up with a better way ways of measuring, we call hard to measure constructs, things like creativity and curiosity. So we're not the first per, uh, people who actually start thinking about it. And I think everybody recognized that those are the kind of things that we care about uh, for the future generation, but oftentimes it's not really emphasized or fosters in, in the school education system. So before I joined MIT, I uh, work on the, the uh, area of game-based, game-based assessment uh, and the work was really trying to figure out using games and simulations to measure things like creativity and persistence. Uh, so that was really the origin of this whole playful assessment work. Uh, and when we started talking to teachers more about it, and we quickly realized that teachers, you know, they do want to measure, do they do want to assess, they do want to foster those skills, but they often feel like, but at the end of the day, we have to do standardized testing. So that kind of frustration there that is more informed by, you know, teachers and, um, you know, school leaders are telling us, like, these are kind of things that we really want to teach and foster better. But we also recognize that assessment is really kind of the barrier for doing so. Uh, And from my point of view, 
Um, I've been working in learning games and educational technology for many years. Um, and it's always been clear that the, the things we really care about teaching and the skills we really want to build in our games and exploratory kinds of experiences are not the things that are measured um, typically in schools, either on standardized tests or on you know, regular assessments, quizzes, tests, and other kinds of things that teachers create themselves. Uh, so that's always been a frustration. But I never uh, really had an interest in assessment until about a year ago, I started working with YJ. Um, and she kind of opened my eyes to the idea that assessment doesn't have to be what we all think it is. The way we all see it right now, it actually could be so much more and so much more playful and a better fit with games and the kinds of learning that we want these days. Um, so together, we've we've kind of brought together these different perspectives um, with the goal of actually creating tools that kind of fit with both both rigorous assessment and playful learning. When I say you guys are focused on measuring things like curiosity and critical thinking, am I playing it down too small or, or are we hitting the nail on the head there? Is that like specifically what you're looking for or is it things beyond that? Those are one of the constructs that we're looking at. So broadly speaking, kind of things you want to measure are so-called 21st century skills, although we don't really like that terminology, are things that are so important to be productive uh in this, you know, creative uh, economy and the economy of ever-changing technology. Uh, yet, if you go to schools, we all learn about content and less about those skills. So those kind of skills that we think is very important for the future and the future workforce that are really not emphasized in current school education system. And also going beyond just, you know, some some measure of creativity or of curiosity or anything like that and looking more deeply at what are you know for example communication is such an important skill but what does that mean what are the different kinds of communication you could be good at some and not good at others you don't necessarily have to be good at at all of them but a lot of this playful assessment work is about recognizing the different ways that there are to be good at these constructs to build skills in these areas and helping learners themselves even recognize what what are they good at? What would they like to improve on? And how can they tell whether they're getting better at those things? Right. And so you, you both have used this term, playful assessments, or, or just playful in general. Why dub it that? The reason why we the, play, the notion of playfulness is really important is if you think about playground, everybody who comes to playground, right, they're all equal players and they share, they have fun, and everybody participate in the process of play. And I think the current practices and when we, when we think about assessment, it's something that is given to students and they don't really have any saying in how they're assessed and what they're assessed uh, on and what purposes. So really our ultimate goal of this playful assessment work is that can we uh, imagine the, the power kind of dynamic or what assessment really means uh, just beyond something that students are passively taking and you know, they're active participants, active producers, uh, also teachers as active participants, ex- active producers in the process and, you know, creating the opportunities for students to be more empowered and creating opportunities for teachers to be more empowered in the process of assessment as well. Can you give me an example of what this looks like in the classroom and actual playful assessment? So one example um, is this game-based assessment we've been developing. It's called Shadow Spec. Uh, it looks like a 
fun uh, puzzle. Uh, like you rotate, you know, shapes and figures in the environment. Uh, but it measures not only uh, students' mathematics uh, content standards, because we're aligning that with common core standards, but it also measures spatial reasoning, creativity, and persistence. How those things are measured is because we're using a lot of process data that is logged uh, through the gameplay. So things you click, things that you move, things you rotate in the environment. And we're using all those we call features to build uh, uh, models that are embedded in the game itself to be able to make inferences based on the process of solving problems in the puzzles. So when you present that game to, say, a group of students or or one student at a time, is the Mm -hmm. goal so they don't realize they're being assessed and they're just enjoying the process? So Yeah, there's this idea called stealth assessment. Um, which certainly has its merits. Um, there are great things about it, and that is pretty much what you're describing. You, you play a game, you're not worried about being assessed, you're not worried about how you're doing, you're, you're just playing, and in the background, it's collecting data and, and running it through some assessment machinery to um, come up with measures of how you're doing on different, different constructs. Um, and that is, that is one thing that we are working on, but um, a lot of our... At the same time, and in and more so in our maker assessment project, um, we are really focusing on bringing the learner in and having them be fully aware that they are engaging in assessment, that they're being assessed, that they're also assessing themselves and helping to assess their peers. That it's really a it's not something to be scared of. It's not something to worry about. It's just a mindset. Assessment is a way of life, kind of. It's it's you know a way to always be. Um, just monitoring your progress and thinking, okay, what did I do there? What what could I have done better? What am I going to try next time? What's important to me about what I'm doing? You know, what am I getting out of this? And kind of encouraging each other, recognizing your group members, other people in your class for for accomplishments that they're making that maybe they couldn't have done the week before. Um, so I often like to design things that are more in that in that vein versus stealth assessment. Um, because I think there's so much to gain out of students understanding that they're being assessed and why they're being assessed and why it matters. Um, there's no reason why they should, there's no reason why we should keep it a secret in many cases. How do you guys envision this being scaled? Um, and what I mean by that, how do you envision it being used in the classroom? And, and do you do you envision it, you know, just starting off small and kind of testing it in different classrooms around the country? Or do you envision multiple districts adopting this? different kinds of projects will scale eventually in different ways. I mean, with all of them right now, we're, we're just piloting um, kind of on the, in a school by school level, but down the road, I mean, the technology tools like a game-based assessment that where the technology does a lot of the interpreting of the data that in some ways it's easier to think about how that would scale um, because you could roll it out in a lot of classrooms. um, And the teacher would of course have to have some, data literacy to understand, you know, what, what is being, what information is being given to them, how to use the feedback. Um, but the technology does a lot of that interpreting. Whereas with the um, kind of paper-based playful objects to, to assess with, um, it's different in that it's definitely a lower barrier to entry. You just download some stuff, get some ideas and, you know, try it out with paper and materials. Um, but there's 
a bit more of a leap there for, okay, now what, how do I make sense of all this data, of all this information that students have generated? How do I take that and turn it into something that's actionable or shareable or that tells a story? Uh, and very skilled teachers are, are already doing that. They are doing that quite naturally. Uh, and so part of our, our goals with playful assessment is to make it easier for, for more teachers to kind of think that way and understand how to do that and understand that it's, it's not as time consuming as they might think that it is actually doable for a class of 30 kids. Are these tools or or games and resources, are they available for anyone now or is there a way they, they have to work with you guys to get access to them? So for the embedded assessment uh, in making uh, that it was a project funded by a national science foundation. Uh, So right now teachers who are participating in the research study are implementing in their own context and we're collecting data and based on that, we're going to iterate the tools one more time, and then we're going to make them available uh, through Maker at uh, website and the network. So our goal is really putting out there. Uh, we're getting really close, uh, but there work that needs to be done before, uh, you know, we make everything available for teachers. But at first, at, at first, it'll just be a demo because this is we're still in very early stages of development. Um, but we are also uh, inviting teachers to join a pilot that will be sh- starting in the next month or two. Um, and we can post the links in the show notes for, you know, how to sign up for that, how to get in touch with us, um, how to stay tuned for, for more information. We are, we are really excited to find more teachers that, you know, want to work with us and want to try things out and give us feedback. So um, we definitely are, are kind of building up our communication channels keep an eye out for that i certainly want to get the uh the link that you mentioned that we could put in the show notes for if people are interested in trying to to sign up um for that that sounds fantastic so mm-hmm. don't let me forget that the article i was reading on ed surge about what you guys are doing there was a big section on the meta rubric and i hadn't really mm-hmm. heard you guys dive into that yet is that is that an important part of what you're doing yeah i would say that um that was one of the first things that we created um, when we were kind of starting to think about, you know, what is it, what is it that we are going to focus on an assessment? Where do we think that we can really have an impact and what are the needs? So MetaRubric is um, a playful learning experience for teachers. It doesn't have to be only for teachers, but it, it is mostly targeted at teachers. Um, and I won't, I won't give you too many details about exactly what the activity is like, but it's played in groups and um, it, it encourages teachers to have a lot of discussion and debate about what they value in a piece of student work. Um, and kind of, they have to reconcile what, what are they, what do they, are they compelled to measure at first with what really matters to them? And when they create a rubric, they kind of then have to have to evaluate the rubric itself and see, okay, did, did this actually measure the things I care about? And is it, is it possible to use it? And can I have other people use it? So it's, um, it's an experience that's not going to teach teachers specifically how to design a good rubric, but it uh, will expand their thinking about what a rubric can be and um, what considerations they should keep in mind when they, when they design rubrics for creative work and open-ended projects with their students. I'm not in academia, so I don't know what really motivates folks in that world. But but what's the end game for you? What? How do you know? Like we did this, we made it, we pulled this <laughs> off. Like w- at what point do you get there? For me, when I hear teachers get excited about it, like like I I was 
very frustrated with my own work for years, uh, you know, because like, oh, great. Like we develop awesome assessment systems. Great. Like it has certain, you know, psychometric qualities. Okay. How many teachers are using it? Uh, so when, you know, we start ex- more exper- experimenting with this playful assessment and, you know, when we hear feedback from teachers, even, you know, very simple, you know, paper-based tools, that really makes me very happy. And I really believe that our work can eventually really change how people think about assessment in school system. And honestly, like I have two kids and they talk about how anxious they are when they take these quizzes and tests. And I really hope that in 20 years or so, kids don't need to feel that way about assessment. So that's for me in game. Yeah. And for me, I would say um, quite similar things that, you know, when when teachers see our ideas and our tools and they get excited and think, oh, this is something I can really use or, oh, this fits with what I, the way I think assessment should be done. And I didn't know this was an actual thing. Or when teachers see, see this stuff and they think, oh, now I get what you're saying. Okay, maybe I can give this a try. You know, so things, anything that we can do to move the needle on teachers' practice, making their assessments more, um, their assessment strategies more varied and more playful and, and just making their assessments more student-centered, you know, really giving students agency um, and valuing what students are doing. That's, that's the key thing. And so I think... This is a much more long-term goal, but I know YJ and I both agree that why one reason why assessments are so important and why it's it means so much to us to be able to measure these important, hard-to-measure constructs is because our school system is so focused on assessments that the way it is, things are not going to be taught. They're not going to be you know given priority if we can't assess them. So if we can find ways and not just tools, but mindsets, ways of thinking um, that can kind of show everybody how we can value these skills, then we then teachers can finally focus more on those and and validate what students are doing and celebrate the wonderful projects that students are making that are meaningful to them. Um, and they can really spend time with those things that and we want society to value these things as well. So I think we hope that our, our assessment methods will will help everyone value the things that are becoming clearer to be more and more important. Do you, are you guys at all motivated by the fact that maybe there's students out there who are who are overlooked because the standardized tests, the typical tests we give, don't capture oh, the, the things mm-hmm. that that you guys are capturing? Yeah, exactly. I think that ties right into what we what we each said about you know test anxiety. I mean, a lot of kids are very smart, but they just they don't do well in high pressure situations or they don't do well with these specific formats of tests that involve so much reading or, you know, whatever it may be. And um, also what I was saying about really valuing what students bring and what their passions are um, so much that students that, that youth can do and are motivated to do is not valued because it's not what's taught or measured in schools. So yeah, I definitely hope that by, by, you know, if we can get more people in the communities to, to value what's, what students can do and what's going on and motivate 
and they can motivate themselves and see their own progress, that it can, everyone can support each other in this way. Uh, well, Louisa and YJ, I really appreciate everything you guys are doing. And I think there's probably a lot of teachers out there that will appreciate it as well. So you guys keep up the, uh, the great work. Are you both ready to take our playful assessment, our pop quiz? <laughs> yes, ready. I don't, I don't Since know. Since pop quiz is playful. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's probably not going to meet the standards be. that you guys are used to, but, but we'll give it a shot. Um, all right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Exploration. Because that should be a subject. Exploration of? Of the world. Of the world. Okay. It's great. Yeah. I think that's the first time we've ever had that answer. I think if there's one, if they can only, if they're only going to have one subject, it should really be figuring out how the world works and following their passion. I, I was going to say a very similar thing. I would say uh, following or discovering your own passion and getting to know who you are. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Might be the same answer. <laughs> <laughs> how to be a good citizen and a productive community member and work, work well with the rest of your community. I think there's way too much focus on individual achievements and knowing, you know, accumulating knowledge. And there should be more focus on just, you know, kind of life skills and working with people and and um, social, emotional, soft skills, all those kind of things. I would say lifelong learning skills, like how you can continue to teach yourself and continue to enjoy learning and continue to grow up. In and outside of schools and beyond uh, whatever school time you have to go. <laughs> what does every child deserve? I say freedom to explore and freedom to enjoy learning. And to be recognized for their strengths. What do you think the biggest challenge is for today's educators? Assessment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, building, the, building more play into their curriculum. Accountability. Assessment-based accountability. What's the best gift to give an educator? A gift card. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, time. The gift of time. Yeah, a gift of time and recognition. I think most most teachers, certainly all good teachers, they, they're not lacking for ideas of how to help mm-hmm. their students and initiatives that they could try. But there's just so much involved in teaching that isn't the actual guiding of students that if there's any way to give teachers more time to explore and experiment and try new things. I also say kind of room to mess around, kind of room to explore space uh, for goofing around a little bit and try new things. Uh, I think that's something we should definitely give to teachers. Which teacher changed your life? Like from as, as a student the one you had it could be as a student or maybe in the professional world either or um in fifth grade my i had i had a teacher named mike zito and i don't remember that much of specific things that he did but i i remember having a a real relationship with him i felt like he knew me and he appreciated me for you know who i was not just for the the tests that i took and things like that he was very creative, and he also taught me to juggle. <laughs> to literally juggle, like juggle balls. Yes. Yeah. Literally. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Right. I didn't even know that. That's yeah. fun. I grew up in South Korea, so I didn't really have <laughs> good teachers. 
Okay. Aww. Well, you seem to be doing very well now, though, despite that. So, um, <laughs> yeah, or or because of it. Yeah, right. It, because of that, I think it's because of that. Yes.、Um, and last question: pen or pencil? Pencil. Colorful markers, of course. There you go. All right, Luisa and YJ. Again, we really appreciate you taking the time, and、uh, we just think it's incredible all the great work that you guys are doing over at MIT.、Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. We look forward to connecting、yeah. with teachers who are listeners. Oh, and one last quick question: Is there a website that people should go to just to kind of keep up with this project? Do you guys post? Do you blog about it, or do you post about it anywhere? We have website, and we also tweet a lot about our work. So, oh, okay, like, following okay. us on Twitter is one good way, and a lot of teachers out there use Twitter a lot.、Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the URL right now there's tsl. mit.edu/playfulassessment,、um, mm-hmm. but actually that that page is probably going to be changing. So best best to just、um, look at the links that we'll give you for the show notes. What's the、uh, Twitter handle that folks should follow? It's at yjkimchee kimchi yjkimchi.、Mm-hmm. And mine is skip to my Louisa. Very nice. All right, thank you guys so much. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. We want to hear from you, so if you want to send us an idea or a comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast dot com. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So if you like what you heard today, please be sure and hit that subscribe button, and we'd also love it if you'd leave us a five star review. Don't forget you can connect with us on Facebook at facebook dot com slash classdismissedpodcast or on Twitter. Just search for us by typing in Class Dismissed. On behalf of Russ with School Status and Lisa representing all the teachers out there, I'm Nick Ward. Go and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.